Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. quickly the keys and their owners even after the anger it turns silent and the everyday turns solitary so we came to February great dar williams if i had like like a music show if i were like ed McCune or somebody i had a music show i would play this every every february 1st in fact there's really nothing stopping me from doing that under these circumstances uh and i do feel as though by the way it's ask or tell me anything uh, today uh and we are prepared to take your phone calls assuming our phone system works which you know sometimes is a jump ball Uh, 888-720-wnpr is the number to call you can decide the topic there's things in the news you might want to talk about but there's things out of the news you might want to talk about, too. 888-720-9677. Uh, 888-720-WNPR, if you're the alphanumeric type. So, um, I did want to say a word or two about February. I, I like living in New England. I'm a New Englander. I like living here. And I like that there's winter. And I even sort of like the whole idea of figuring out winter. <laughs> like, how, what am I going to wear? How much do I need to wear? How many layers do I have to have on? All these kinds of things. Uh, how am I going to survive this particular... And as you know, we have this kind of terrifying cold snap that's coming. I mean, it's not terrifying. People are trying to make us feel as though it's terrifying. But we have some really, really cold weather coming in. And, um, you know, I'm sort of thinking, that's interesting. It's a challenge. It's kind of fun. The problem is that February comes exactly at the time... February comes exactly during February. February comes exactly at the time when you are really, really tired uh, of being cold, right? And and there's something punitive about February. It's like it has a personality that's saying, you know, you thought winter was over. Actually, we're just getting started. This I'm going to be so much worse than January. February is something to prove is what I'm saying. And, and I, I do think for that reason, uh, I find it a little harder to take. 
And then there's also the question, and I realize this is a rambling conversation, but uh, there's also the question of March. See, I, for a long time, I thought March was the worst month in New England because March comes and it kind of really can't make up its mind. And it's sort of showing you a crocus here and there. You know, it's kind of dangling the idea of spring at you, but it's not really. Uh, but I've come to accept March. It's going to be muddy. Uh, it's going to be unpredictable. It's going to do that lion lamb thing. Um, but February, there's something about February that doesn't like us. And with that in mind, I am now going to read a poem by Margaret Atwood called February. I have to make sure it doesn't have any bad words in it. I'm pretty sure. Like I can say, well, I'll just say it when I get to it, okay? Um, February. Winter. Time to eat fat and watch hockey. In the pewter mornings, the cat, a black fur sausage with yellow Houdini eyes, jumps on the bed and tries to get onto my head. It's his way of telling whether or not I'm dead. If I'm not, he wants to be scratched. If I am, he'll think of something. He settles on my chest, breathing his breath of burped-up meat and musty sofas, purring like a washboard. Some other tomcat, not yet a capon, has been spraying our front door, declaring war. It's all about sex and territory, which are what will finish us off in the long run. Some cat owners around here should snip a few testicles. If we wise hominids were sensible, we'd do that too, or eat our young like sharks. But it's love that does us in. Over and over again, he shoots, he scores, and famine crouches in the bedsheets, ambushing the pulsing eiderdown, and the wind chill factor hits 30 below, and pollution pours out of our chimneys to keep us warm. February, month of despair, with a skewered heart in the center. I think dire thoughts and lust for French fries with a splash of vinegar. Cat. Enough of your greedy whining and your small pink bumhole. Off my face! You're the life principle, more or less, so get going. Get going on a little optimism around here. Get rid of death. Celebrate increase. Make it be spring. Yeah, I was uncertain about whether I could say that word, but like if Mark, Margaret Atwood could write it, I think I could probably say it. All right, so our number is, I'm not 100% sure the phone is working, so why don't we put out the number and we'll see if anybody does call in. One, uh, it's, excuse me, it's 888-720-WNPR, 888-720-9677. Let me do that again, 888-720-WNPR. If you're the type of person who likes to spell things out on your keypad, let me also tell you about some things we got coming up here on the show and... I might want to talk a little bit uh, about um, the Tyree Nichols case. I mean, ordinarily, on these Ask or Tell Me Anything shows, we, we go a little bit more for the whimsical, a little bit more for the esoteric, a little bit more for the eclectic. But it is on my mind right now. So if there's time and people don't call up about other stuff, uh, we'll talk about that. But so tomorrow, one of the things that we tried to do – oh, see, I can see a phone, a phone call there. We can, our phones work. So um, tomorrow, one of the things we tried to do during Pledge – is to um, divine as a show. We're in a pledge week here right now. You may be noticing we're cutting in from time to time, interrupting uh, and trying to raise money. One of the things we've tried to do is develop a, a type of show that will accommodate that a little bit better because often we like to do these long-form shows, all one topic, 
the flow gets kind of interrupted. So we, we've taken something, a form we call the scramble, uh, where we do three separate topics and kind of fit into that space a little bit better. So tomorrow, we're going to have a conversation at the beginning about pizza boxes, but a profound conversation about pizza boxes. Why has no one, no one, why has no one invented the collapsible pizza box? You know, the pizza box where you just kind of touch it a couple of times and it kind of you know, tucks itself right together and fits into your recycling bin a little bit better. Pizza boxes, expiration dates, which it turns out are maybe a little less etched in stone or, you know, reliable perhaps than we want to believe they are, and donkeys. So, you know, I mean, that's eclectic, right? That's three very different topics. Also, on the nose this week, we're going to talk about Black Panther, Wakanda Forever, and the series Poker Face. Um, Oh, and Monday, we're we're doing a whole show about fungi. Uh, because, partly because of The Last of Us on HBO Max, which is HBO Max's dramatization of a video game, also called The Last of Us. And the, the premise is that there's a pandemic, but it's fungi. And they can kind of take over you, uh, take over your body and kind of keep you alive and march you around and make you do things. Which I don't think actually... <laughs> <laughs> that's not the focus of our show on Monday. I don't think we're going to claim that that's going to happen. Uh, all right, so 888-720-WNPR. Yeah, we've got some calls coming in here. People are starting to get it. So here's Mary Jane in North Stonington, in cougar-infested, mountain-lion-infested uh, North Stonington, Connecticut. Hi, Mary Jane. Yeah, I, I have to do some research on that uh, cougar that got over here. He's well, he's back from the days of the pilgrims he was here and now one has come back mm-hmm. i don't know what's going to happen when these uh see people have collections of artisanal cows and i don't know if that cougar gets into some of these uh, uh meadows with these beautiful cows i i hope he can find maybe raccoons or something i don't know but what Wait a minute. i want to go, i want to go back to artisanal cows for a second are we talking like belted galloways or something i mean they like- are Cows that are imported from Switzerland, huh. and they're like half as big, like a normal black and white cow. These cows are again half as big. They're like huge. Oh, so they're, yeah, they're one hundred and fifty percent of a normal cow, is what you're saying? Yes, that's right. And people have all these collections of gorgeous. They're sort of almost look like prehistoric cows. They, <laughs> they get them all around and. They have herds, and I just hope that the cougar stays out of them. But he'll probably just get raccoons. Well, probably. I would say that a, you know, a cow that's 150% of a normal cow would be perhaps a little bit off-putting for a mountain lion. Oh, um, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. He'd probably looking for a smaller cow. Do you have any smaller cows here is what he would be wondering. No, but there's so many small horses. People have little collections of small horses. <laughs> It's a very amazing place. Everybody's busy, but it isn't a resort of any kind. Are you, you know, are you sure you're in North Stonington and not like Schmigadoon or something? Well, I don't really always know where I am because I'm from New Haven. Okay. And I'm out here in North Stonington. It's very fascinating, beautiful, but different. All right. So what was the actual purpose of your call before I began oh, I diverting you? I just wanted you. to know if any of the listeners know how these huge batteries in the electric cars are going to be recycled after the car has had its time. It's you know, a- after 10 years or so, how are those batteries going to be recycled? Does anybody know? Yeah, I, th- I think I think that most of the companies are at least trying to come up with plans for that. I mean, the batteries are the problem, right? Well, there's two problems with electric cars. First of all, you got to make sure you, you charge them in a way 
that has a relatively small carbon footprint. So the ideal thing, obviously, is a solar charger. But as has been pointed out on our show, anything that you – the electric grid is just going to keep getting better as opposed to things like gas and coal. Um, so anything you plug into the electric grid, probably pretty good. And you know, the batteries are a problem all kinds of different ways, right? The resources that they use, the stuff that they got to mine to make them – all that kind of stuff. And yeah, I, I personally don't know the answer to the question about recycling batteries. But if you're out there listening and you do, 888-720-9677, 888-720-WNPR, if you know what happens to electric car batteries when it's time to say bye-bye to the car. This will be like, there used to be a show on, I'm going to say, it's not K-U-T, K- K-E-R-A, is that the Dallas station? Where does Eric come from? Um, and it was this show, I forget what it was called, but the whole show for an hour or two was just people calling up about with questions, I mean, often much more practical questions even than the one you just asked, and then other people would call up and try to answer the questions. I mean, the host really didn't do much of anything, <laughs> but people would just sort of say, do you know where I can get such and such a thing, you know, and then people yes, would call them to solve the problem. That. I heard that. It's wonderful. People would get uh, old filing cabinets for $10. You know, there was a show like that where you could get oddball things secondhand. Well, that was, there was the WTIC tag sale. Yeah, this one, I'm not, I'm not doing justice to the one in Texas. It was, it was oh, more... in Texas, you had a different kind. It was a much more far-ranging thing. Yeah, I mean, I'm not from Texas, but... But when I was driving around there, um, I would listen to it, and I really loved it. I mean, I got kind of addicted to it, and then they don't do it anymore. All right, so you can call up about anything you want, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. We've established that the phones actually work. That's good. That's always a good start. Here is Nancy from South somewhere. There's like... There's a little tiny Southampton. Re- Southampton. Okay. There's a little <laughs> tiny rectangle that they have to type the town into, and then you can't see what it says. This is South. This, New is, York, yeah. this is South Ha right now on my thing. Uh, well, good afternoon. I wanted to thank you very much for recommending a book last week called Our Man in Tokyo. Mm-hmm. That is an excellent read, and I'm just plowing right through it, and I I really recommend it. But here's my question to you as a follow up to this book. So. Um, uh, Pearl Harbor happened in December of 41, and D-Day was in June of 44. What happened? What did we do in the two and a half years <laughs> in between? What did the U.S. do <laughs> before we got over to Europe? And uh, surely we were, because we were declared war on. Yeah, no. Forty-one. Um, I I, th- I don't know the answer to that off the top of my head, so that's another thing people could call up about. But I mean, obviously there was a sort of a, a ramping up. I mean, we were already manufacturing stuff for use by by our allies. But yeah, that's true. I, I'm just assuming there was sort of a, a massive ramping up and mustering, and obviously the draft ha- had to be put on steroids. And I mean, you really kind of had to create the capacity to intervene in both theaters. But yeah, th- that book is a remarkable book, and the story of Joseph Grew, it really is a remarkable story. And, and as I said on that show, too, I had encountered his name in a somewhat different context when he was—this is not really part of the book, but when he was out of Japan and he was back in Washington and there was this debate going on about whether to use these nuclear weapons, which, first of all, people—you know, I mean, very few people knew about it uh, initially, but what was clear— was that, first of all, we were in the process of obliterating Japan just through firebombing. Um, MacArthur had a Del Marshall 
you know, do you want us to save four cities or something? Because right now we're bombing them into the Stone Age. But the other part was, would Japan unconditionally surrender or or surrender with few enough con, uh, conditions so that would it would be acceptable? And Gru, who was kind of acting Secretary of State or something like that, was trying to persuade the rest of the leadership in Washington. They really want to do this. They really want to surrender. But face is a yeah. huge issue. And, and, and beyond that, um, they had kind of switched uh, governing styles. The Suzuki cabinet had come in. It had much more of a sort of a Taoist uh, point of view. So they did things a little bit more obscurely and mysteriously. So they responded to the Potsdam Declaration with something called Mokusatsu, which kind of means... I'm going to pretend that didn't happen because uh, I don't know what to say about it. Uh, but it was interpreted to the U.S. leadership as rejection, or they're just, you know, they they're not they wouldn't even dignify that with a response or something, which which is not I don't think the message at all. It grew was trying to get them to see, no, we really might not have to use these apocalyptic weapons. We really could probably get them to the table. And they're looking for a way to surrender. They just don't want to lose face too much, and they don't want to give up their their emperor's throne anyway. And he wasn't listened to. So, anyway, so fascinating. He story. wasn't. No, nope. <laughs> during his whole tenure. No, that was like the whole thing. No, nobody really, nobody really wants to know very much about people if they're going to be violent with those people. You know, it's right. kind of like the less you know, the more you can depersonalize them. Thanks for your call. And we got some call. We got some people calling in to defend February. And we've got Nathaniel calling in from Norwich. Hi, Nathaniel. You have the conch shell. Hi there. Wow. Thank you very much. I love your show, and I'm so excited to be able to say hi to you. Well, we're excited, too. Cool. Well, I've noticed in listening to your show now for several years since I moved here from Chicago that you've had a typewriter show, a big pen show, and an ink show. And I was wondering if you were thinking about doing a fountain pen show one day. Um, New England has a huge history of fountain pen manufacturing, and I thought you might have a fun time with that show. It's actually a really good idea. Um, I mean, we like things that are perched on the lip of obsolescence. Um, Right. I mean, not because of planned obsolescence, but because just the world has moved on. And boy, the fountain pen does seem like an endangered species. I I will say that as a left-handed person, I just have never had a relationship with fountain pens at all. They just strike me as because I mean you know as a left-hander we either have to push something from left to right or drag it sort of curl our arm around and try to drag it. So you're either going to push your the side of your hand through the ink or drag your cuff through the ink or something. I mean I can I can barely use a big pen without creating smudging. Uh, left-handers have a whole whole different relationship. But I like the idea and and I, I like the idea too. That you know, these are pens that had a kind of elegance, and you know, the Mont Blancs and the you know the really fancy ones had a real stature to them that almost no other writing instrument ever could. And certainly, there's no such thing as you know the ballpoint equivalent uh, of a Mont Blanc. So, I, I like that idea. Yeah. Yeah, they're 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 totally fun. I'm I've been addicted since I was nine, but I'm right-handed, so I. I've got a skewed perspective, I suppose, but uh, yeah, you right-handed England, people are weird. Anyway, yeah, continue. No, we're pretty wild, but <laughs> but uh, you know, uh, Waterman pens are super famous. They were based out of New York, and you had Morrison's, which was based out of Boston, along with a few other companies, and then uh, Cross Pens was right over in uh, Lincoln, Rhode Island. 
So uh, yeah, there's there's hopefully some there's some there's some material to mine. Hopefully, I like the idea too that it's kind of like an organism too. It's like it has a sort of more organic feature in uh, in the organism sense than a ballpoint pig could ever. I mean, it's got liquid that you put into it. You're kind of constantly refueling it. I, I don't know. It it, it is. It, you know, you've made a very good case for it. You sound like you'd be a good guest on that show, so we'll keep you in mind. Um, Kat, I'm going to take the one more call here, and then we're going to go to a break, and it's probably not going to be that much of a break because we're going to have to do some fundraising during it. But uh, here's Bob in Hampton. Not Southampton, not Northampton, but normal old Hampton. Hi, Bob. You have the floor. Howdy, Colin. Uh, listen, I just felt like I needed to defend February a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, you were, I thought, a little harsh. A <laughs> um, couple things. Uh, February marks the end of dry January, which for me is a happy day, <laughs> uh, having gotten through it and uh, looking forward to a more moderated life in, in February. Um, we are officially deep into 2023 in February. The days are getting longer. And I might be deluded, but I'm just kind of feeling like I'm seeing a little bit uh, of the end of the tunnel. All yeah, right. that's that's sort of the false promise that February makes, I think. But it's the thing is, you can see the end of the tunnel. You're just going to be punished all the way through that last, you know, one fifth of the of the tunnel. I don't know. Some of that sounds a little bit like spin. Uh, like the days are getting longer. Well, the like days were getting longer in January too. Um, I, I know what Fair you mean, enough. though. I, I but I know what you mean because I think one of the things that we all do. In terms of marking that kind of change in time and change in sunlight, is there's like there's an appointment that I have on Wednesdays that I get out of. Let's see what time do I get out? I get out around four thirty, I guess. You know, maybe a little, maybe around quarter to five. You know, whether it's dark or light, there really makes a big difference. You know, when you come out of that thing, you know. Yeah. I, I used to do a show from three to six. Uh, I used to do an afternoon afternoon drive radio show and. You know, when it would be light when I came out, it was such a good feeling. And when it was pitch black, that was such a bad feeling. So I understand what you're saying. I have to ask you one question. So if you're going to break your fast, so to speak, today, what's yeah. it, it going to be? Is it like a cocktail? Is it a glass of wine? Is well, it a beer? It'll be a, it'll be a glass of wine. Or I'm actually pondering. I might not even uh, have a glass until tomorrow because I felt a little tethered by the uh, the dry January thing. Yeah. So it'll be kind of fun not to make a choice rather than, I mean, dry January was great because you feel like you're part of a team and now I'm on the, on the other side of that and that feels good, but I feel a little bit released, if you know what I'm saying. And so it'll be kind of fun to move forward now uh, out of my own volition a little bit more. So. <laughs> I mean, technically it was always of your own volition, but yes, I understand what you're saying. It's sort of like saying that there's there's something a little uh, uh, crazed about sort of, oh, it's February 1st, I can drink now. It's sort of like you're thinking, <laughs> oh, what kind of what kind of dependency do I have that this is like such an incredible release for me? Whereas you're saying you have no power over me. I, you know, I think I won't drink for one extra day just to prove that this is not necessarily right. this Don't life or death proposition. You, right, right. Well, it's like being on a team, and you know, you're not always happy when you have to go to work out. You know, mm-hmm. so uh, this is 
you know, just taking a run on your own kind of a thing. I like the analogy. I like analogies of all kinds. All right. We have to take a break right now. Um, oh, you know, just as I want to just say before we go out, because are we going to we're going to play music out of this, right, Kat? And, okay, so we're going to play something from the '80 for Brady soundtrack. I guess it's maybe the only song that's in there because you know Tom Brady did announce once again his retirement today. Um, he's always very nice about upstaging, not upstaging the groundhog. Does it on the first every single time he retires. And this is actually Dolly Parton, Gloria Estefan, Cindy Lauper, Debbie Harry, and I think maybe even somebody else. Anyway, this is one of the, this is maybe the title song from Eighty for Brady. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. All right. Uh, obviously, I need to get some counseling. Um, but uh, meanwhile, one eight hundred. Excuse me. That's the that's the pledge line. Eight 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 seven two zero WNPR. That's the phone in line. Very confusing during pledge week. Eight 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 seven two zero nine six seven seven. I also want to mention, should things slow down, I do have. Um, I, I, I do have Mr. Carp envelopes here. Mr. Carp, uh, of course, the smartest human being that I've ever encountered, anyway, and he now sends me. Envelopes full of clippings that are inscrutably and mysteriously underlined. So we can always open one of those, and then I'll just talk about whatever's inside, which is a very frightening prospect. All right. So one, uh, it's 888-720-WNPR, 888-720-9677. See, don't ever do anything as complicated as give me two different phone numbers that I have to master during the same hour. It's just too much. All right. Here is Jim in New Milford. Hi, Jim. Hey, Colin. Um, I have kind of a morbid question, but it's something that, that <laughs> has occurred to me over the last few weeks. Yeah. Um, and I haven't heard it brought up anywhere. And uh, I don't know, one, like your take on it. Do you think that there is any chance that Xi Jinping, the government in China, relaxed their heavy-duty COVID restrictions um, because it would knowingly reduce the elderly population and have positive, positive economic effects uh, down the road, you know, with healthcare and everything. Well, first of all, I mean that is a morbid question. Uh, second of all, I think in the absence of proof, you don't make assumptions like that, uh, you know, uh, about anybody because we kind of hope that's not the case. Um, I think, yes. I, I think that they relaxed the restrictions because they'd become impossible to enforce, and because mm-hmm. you know the, they had also. 
probably, you know, well, I mean, I think that's the main reason. He, I mean, you, you can impose rules on a populace up to the point where the populace no longer will follow the rules. This is one of my basic tenets of public policy. Don't make a rule that you can't enforce. And he, they were able to enforce it initially through, you know, incredibly brutal measures, welding doors shut where people lived mm-hmm. and stuff like that. But um, I, just, I just assume that they were unworkable. Uh, I yeah. I hope it's not eugenics, and, and I, you know now of course we are being told that you know officially was it May 11th the the pandemic is going to officially end here. Um, I mean I don't think it's over by any means. I mean I, I think here what's happening is sort of a shoot the wounded and declare victory strategy, which I, like I know why they want to do that, and and I think the fact that they were going to do that was kind of inevitable. But, you know, four or five hundred people a day dying of something, it's not over. Um, so, yeah. you know, anyway, um, this whole process, this whole crisis has not brought out the best in people. All right. I'm going to write down the line here. We've got Eamon in New Haven. Hi, Eamon. You're on the air. Oh, hi. It's Iman. Oh, Iman. Oh, it's um, Iman. Oh, I didn't realize who it was. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> That's okay. Um, so my question is about the green comet that is, you know, visible from our skies, I guess, like now and tomorrow and a little bit after. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm curious what you see the comet as predicting for our planet, as, you know, like ancient stargazers used to use astronomical events to sort of make predictions about what would happen. Um, so I'm curious what your prediction is. See, my tempta- temptation is, the last time you called up with, with a question like this, my answer was kind of morbid and depressing. Um, <laughs> that was the one about, oh, you know, being yeah, reborn yeah. as a different animal. And, and I, I hate to be morbid and depressing again, but to me, a green comet says, you know, this planet needs to kind of grow back into its own state, its old state. And the only way to do that is to get rid of the people causing the Anthropocene era, uh, and so if I were if I were Nostradamus or somebody trying to interpret a green comet, I, you know that's where my thought would go initially. Is like, <laughs> saying, "All right, let's get all the leafy stuff back," and the only way to do that is to get rid of the creatures who cut down Amazon rainforests and stuff like that. So guess what? You're gone. Um, so that was also kind of a more morbid and depressing. But you're a poet. You tell me, what does it mean to you? <laughs> I, I mean, I kind of had the same feeling, like the beginning of the end of our species. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It could also just mean nothing. It could mean nothing, and it could be, you know, a, a comet just saying, "Well, you know what? We know you're doing the best you can." You know, comets sometimes oh, yeah. just say that uh, that we recognize you are doing the best you can. It's not particularly impressive, but we know you're sort of trying. Um, and when a comment takes that kind of patronizing attitude with me, I realize it's time to change my game up a little bit. So, mm-hmm. but Iman, thank you for your call. They're, all, they're always the very inventive phone calls, and you have to be ready, ready for that. All right. So uh, here's Joe from Rocky Hill. I think he's got a language issue. We love language issues. Joe, you have the floor. Hi. Maybe this is a generational thing. But I've noticed that the words, you're welcome, seem to be drifting away from the American language. Usually when you say something to somebody and you say thank you, they now they say, of course, no problem, or something like that. And it just seems to me to lack the sincerity and the connection of you're welcome. Your welcome seems to be just a special thing that seems to be falling apart. Yeah, I feel like... 
you know, I think this is, might be an area where it's not the words, it's the intonation, it's the because you're welcome was for many decades said reflexively probably more often than thoughtfully and and I think I understand your suggestion this which is that even if you know by reflex uh, as you know an autonomic response or something we're saying you're welcome it still carries a message to the person who hears it and perhaps it carries a message to us too that we're saying more gracious words uh, than you know than we than Donata or something. And, and I want to say also that I'm probably guilty of no problem. Um, I, I'll probably say that more than I say anything or no worries or something like that. So I think your point's a good one, but it seems to me it's more the expression on a person's face, the sound of their voice. I mean, if people, somebody says, oh, you're very welcome, you can kind of tell that they sort of mean it. Whereas you're welcome, you know, I don't know, you can say that as thoughtlessly as you can say, no problem, or whatever the other examples were that you gave. So I don't know. What do you think about that? Maybe it's just sort of what's in our hearts more than the two or three words that we use. You're, you're very welcome actually does have the sincerity, but I don't even hear the reflex of your welcome anymore, Yeah, which to me is just a shame. I understand. I get it. Uh, but language changes all the time, too. And... Language stays here changing after we're gone, and sometimes we just sort of have to face the fact that things will happen that we don't like. All right, I'm going to take this call from Peter in New Haven, then we'll go to a quick break. David is going to tell us, I think, that uh, the, like Tesla batteries are not recyclable, uh, which I'm quite prepared to believe. But um, but we'll, we'll take Peter, then we'll take our short break. We'll come back, and we'll kind of wrap up with a few more calls here. The number, 888-720-WNPR, and here's Peter from New Haven. Hi. Hi, Colin. How are you doing? Good. Good. Well, I've got a, a question here as someone who's not a local from Connecticut. Moved to this state uh, a few years ago and was actually um, back home on the West Coast for about a month before recently returning. And the same problem that I noticed the first time just popped right back into visibility. And I figured who else to come to than, uh, than the Sage of Connecticut. So my question is, uh, where does the reckless driving in Connecticut come from? The stoplight running, the speeding, the passing on the right, you know, um, is it just, you know, the culture? Is it a policy thing? Uh, what are your thoughts? Yeah, well, first of all, I'm sorry you couldn't reach the age of Connecticut, but his lines are often very busy, and we're happy to take any of the overflow here. But, um, yeah, I, I mean, first of all, people talk about this a lot, and they talk about specifically about Connecticut drivers as being as doing all the things that you just described. And, and I think, well, the first thing I have to say is driving has gotten worse in Connecticut during the pandemic and whatever phase of the pandemic we're in right now, either, you know, end stage or post, depending on who you believe. Driving got worse. And, and I think part of it is because people didn't drive as much and they kind of forgot. Uh, but I think also there was sort of a kind of a pent up thing that started to happen. And OK, now I'm back out and I want to get where I'm going. And I think also there's something about the pandemic where people stopped caring about each other as much. Um, you know, if you're sort of isolated, you don't see people. When you do see people, there may be even a threat of infection to you. I think people stopped caring as much. I think people also were under a lot of stress, stress during the pandemic and they're drinking more. So, I mean, one of the ways that we saw this, obviously, in these, is in a huge upspike in these incredibly deadly wrong-way crashes, you know, where people go the wrong way on a, on a ramp uh, and, and you know, collide with somebody head-on. But, yeah, I noticed it, too. I was I driving back from New Haven yesterday, and I, I had people 
literally veer out of their oncoming lane uh, and into my lane. And, and it just, like, what, what are you doing? What, what's happening here? I, I do think there's a way in which Connecticut repression manifests itself in reckless driving and road rage, right? Because, you know, you sort of keep all your emotions bottled up and you, you don't necessarily have the, you know, the good ways of or the normal ways of getting some of your aggression out or your hostilities or whatever, because we don't talk to anybody. We barely even say hello. We apparently don't say you're welcome anymore either. And uh, I think it's sort of in there somewhere. I mean, there are, there are also within New England, it seems like, I mean, like Boston, I believe, is set up to illustrate the futility of driving. I mean, to me, the message of Boston after about half an hour of driving is just park the car someplace and just don't don't drive it again until you're ready to leave Boston uh, because we don't want you to drive here. And we've intentionally set up this city so that we'll never figure out how to do it. So, but, but I, I get it. Uh, and I think it is getting worse. And I'm sorry for you as a transplant. Yeah, I mean, well, did you say Chicago? Because Chicago people are, you know, they're nicer, um, like overall. Um, I mean, it's all relative, but um, it is all know, relative. I'm just curious if you, do you think there's a policy solution, or is it just one of these intangible? It's our social contract, and it is what it is. Well, I mean, look, you can make a decision to, for example, enforce the speed limit. Um, you need more cops to do that, uh, and it costs more money and stuff like that. You can you can enforce some of these laws, or you can. I think what's probably going to happen is that you're going to see a lot of this done with technology, maybe up to and including AI. Uh, I mean, I think it would be, for example, I live near a place where there's a stop sign that nobody ever stops for. Like, nobody ever stops for. <laughs> I mean, it's, it just really is regarded as just not a necessary stop sign, so people just they just speed on through. Now, you, you, pretty could, you could pretty easily do what they've done in, in some other intersections, set up cameras there and stuff like that, and just, you know, record people's uh, driver's licenses and, and send them tickets. And, you know, I think we'll probably see more of that. People don't want to spend the money on the FTEs that it would take. But the other thing is there's something wrong with people right now because, you know, with those head-on collisions on the wrong way ramps, you know, the infrastructure didn't change. People just started either driving drunk or driving carelessly or driving wearily or something. Uh, and, I mean, we changed somehow. So if we want to do something about it, we might have to change back. All right. I really got to go to break here. I'm going to have very little time on the other side of the break either. But let's grab our last break. Wake up in the morning and there's love laying there. You know, by the way, that uh, little musical sting out of the last section, uh, that was Smokey Robinson with a new song uh, that he has out. Smokey Robinson will turn 83 later this month, February 19th. And I don't know. I'm always like, the older I get, the happier I am when people <laughs> who have hit milestones ahead of me on the road are still doing their thing and doing it well. So thanks to Cat Pastor. She's our technical producer. Then the big boss, because in fact, Mr. McPants was suddenly uh, under the weather. Uh, the big boss, Katie Tularski, is in there. Uh, she is screening phone calls. Thanks uh, very much to her as well. And we are going to try to get a one or two calls in here before we have to go to the pledge break. I screwed up the clocks, as usual. Here's David in New York. Hi, David. Uh, hi there. Uh, let me first say that uh, being in New York here, we express our rage all the time, and <laughs> I never heard a dry January, so I didn't observe it. Uh, so January was no problem for me. Um, uh, 
once I lived in Minnesota, and they go out ice fishing, and they bring lots of fuel along with them. Yes, exactly. <laughs> That's how you get through January. Um, yeah, uh, Tesla batteries, anyway, and maybe other electric lithium batteries um, are not, they're basically not recyclable. Um, and they're like a lot of little AA-sized cells all wired together, thousands of them in that volume. And if you think that they're going to unwind each one of those little AA-sized cells and extract a little tiny bit of lithium or whatever that's in them, uh, I don't think so. I mean, they do claim that they are recycling and that they are recovering materials. And uh, in their 2021 impact report, uh, they said that they had increased battery material recycling to 1,500 tons of nickel, 300 tons of copper, and 200 tons of cobalt. Of course, another problem with this is that Teslas are new enough uh, and, and I mean, obviously, there are gro- the the herd of Teslas ranging across the American landscape is growing by leaps and bounds. But there may not be enough old Teslas so that they have enough old batteries so that they can develop a really uh, a sophisticated and successful recycling program. I mean, I, you know, they should do the recycling anyway just to be green. But it also may be the case that in terms of upscaling. They, they may need more material to work with them. But they claim, anyway, that they're doing it. And I, I think right. they claim that they can recycle 92% of the battery. I mean, if uh, you know, if, if anybody would make an automated process to recycle those things, uh, Elon would be the guy to do it. Um, you know, and I wouldn't be surprised if they have, like, some automated, uh, you know, thing that uh, strips them open and, and sorts the stuff out. Um, I just didn't know that. But, um, but yeah, that's how they're built. Yeah. Um, what I'd like to see is a uh, just a cheap lead-acid battery in the bottom of the car. It's heavier. It doesn't work as well. It would be cheap, and uh, and I could buy a cheaper car, and uh, and it wouldn't go zero to uh, 60 in three seconds, and I wouldn't care. All right. So, well, first of all, thank you for all of that. Uh, and uh, we're going to stop, I think, there uh, as we head into a pledge uh, break. But first of all, thank, to, thank you for everybody who called up today. And um, thank you for knowing so much about batteries. <laughs> so, yeah, let's play the music. Get out. We'll come back. We'll do the pledge break. 